glad you're here because we're in the uh, part five of this uh, series that we're doing on spiritual formation. And I've actually really enjoyed the series. In fact, a lot of you have enjoyed the series because I'd say so far this series, I've had the most positive comments come to me on the series. People are really liking it, liking this topic, liking talking about formation, about reading the Bible, about silence and solitude. And last week we talked about Sabbath and we're just going to continue to talk about Sabbath again today. And the whole goal of this series is just to become authentic followers of Jesus Christ. Spiritual formation is simply about it's an intentional conscious plan to keep God at the center of everything we do so that's what we're talking about today we're just going to continue to talk about how do we focus our lives around Jesus Christ so we can grow and do the things that he's called us to do now for some of you if you grew up in Grand Rapids or you were around Grand Rapids in the early 70s you will remember and you probably observed one of the greatest cultural challenges for many Christians in this area. I remember clearly when in the early 70s, I was, you know, five or six or seven, listening to my parents and my grandparents and my aunts and uncles and the people from the church I grew up in talking about this impending crisis that our church was facing in Grand Rapids. See, the crisis that the churches were facing in Grand Rapids in the early 70s was the fact that Meyer was going to open their stores on Sunday. That was a catastrophe for people in my clan. <laughs> that was hard, hard news. And I know there's some other clans in here that that was difficult news. I mean, it was a catastrophe because it was like, how are we going to live in this culture that opens a grocery store on Sunday? See, when I was a kid, going to the grocery store on Sunday was a sin. You did not do that. You didn't even think about doing it. It was that much of a sin. And Sabbath observation in this West Michigan area, and for most parts of the United States, was pretty much practice. So Sabbath was a, the day of the week that God did give us to us as a gift, a day to set aside for rest and renewal. And this rhythm was taken very serious in the American culture until you start seeing in the 60s and the 70s the culture was saying, I'm not going to go along with this anymore. So for my family and a lot of people in West Michigan, the 70s were a time to realize that not everybody in America thinks and believes and acts the same way we do. And it was a hard so the big question for my family was, you know, how are you going to live in this culture? How are you going to live in a society that opens grocery stores on Sunday? I mean, it was a serious issue. I remember, I grew up on the northwest side over here, and I remember they would send elders from the church I went to and other Christian Reformed churches in the area to the Meyer parking lots on Sunday to look for church members going into the store. And if you went in... That was not good. I, I remember as a little kid hearing names of people that were busted and just thinking, whoa, these are bad, bad people. I still have these names in my head. Fortunately, I was never one of them. So I grew, I grew up in this culture with this whole idea that your observance to Sunday rules was the pinnacle of the Christian walk. For me, if you were a good boy on Sunday and you followed the rules, you got six other days of the week to do whatever you wanted to do. As long as you came back every Sunday and you followed the rules. 
And so it's really sad to see that Sunday God gave us a Sabbath to take one day out of the week and say, I'm going to give it to you for rest and renewal. And just to see how legalism came in and kind of destroyed the gift that God gave to us. I want to read this quote by John Piper. I read it last week, and I think this quote kind of just summarizes a lot of my message last week. It kind of gets to the heart of what we're talking about. So in this beautiful quote, it says, So Jesus didn't come to abolish the Sabbath, but to dig it out from under the mountain of legalistic sediment and to give it to us again as a blessing rather than a burden. That's why I want to talk about the Sabbath. Because it's this blessing that God has for us, but so many of us are just like turned off of it because of the legalism that's put over it. So goes on to say, it is a day for showing mercy and a day for doing good. It should not be governed rigidly by narrow definitions of what is work and what is not. It is a day to focus on the Lord. And now Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So it is a day to focus on Jesus. And it is impossible for a day focused on Jesus should be burdened to the believing heart. Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is what we need to get back to. Back to the idea where we want to practice the rhythms and practice the patterns of the Sabbath day to uncover what a blessing it is for all of us. See, last week I did talk about the Sabbath, and I didn't plan to talk about it this week. But I decided to talk about it again because I think it's very important that we focus on the Sabbath day and the blessing that God wanted to give each of us. It's kind of easy for me to say, you know what, I like the Ten Commandments. I'm just going to skip over the fourth one because I just have a lot of legalistic memories of it, so I just kind of shy away from it. And so over the last year, Becky and I have been a little bit more serious of saying, okay, how can we incorporate a Sabbath blessing into our, our life and our weekly routine without getting buried in legalism? How can we use the Sabbath day for what God really intended it to be? And that's my desire as a church and as a family and a community. We kind of seek the Lord and say, okay, what would a Sabbath day look like for each of us without legalism? And so it goes back to the question that I brought earlier. You know, how are we going to live in this post-Christian culture? See, back in the 70s, it's kind of the same question that we're facing 50 years later. How do we live for Jesus in a culture that really doesn't want to follow Jesus? You know, the truth is we all struggle with how are we going to be effective Christians in a culture that discounts the Bible, discounts the authority of the Bible, or discounts uh, the, the value of the Scripture? How do we live in a culture that wants to redefine the value of human life, different from what the Bible says? Or how do we live in a culture that wants to redefine sexual ethics that are different from what the Bible would say? Or how do we live in a culture that, um, in a culture when our views are suddenly the minority? No longer are we the majority view in the United States and many countries of the world. We're the minority. How do we live in this culture? So the structure, well, the, the big question is, what do we do? See, typically there's three different ways that we respond. See, one of the first ways that we can respond um, when we live in this kind of culture is that we can get very frustrated with people that don't agree with us, and we just leave. We just abandon. We just withdraw. It's interesting. At the time of Jesus' day, there was the Jewish sect. There's a Jewish culture. And in the Jewish culture, there was three different sects, or three different, almost like little denominations. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, and you had the Essenes. Three different groups of Jewish people, kind of leaders in the Jewish law that were kind of dominant um, people groups, a part of the Jewish community. And so the Essenes, they were part of a sect of Jewish, Jewish people. And when the culture kind of turned against them, they, they left. They just kind of said, okay, we're going to go to the desert. We're going to 
set up camp another place. And then the second option that sometimes people do is we say, I don't want to fight with culture. I'll just do whatever culture says. I'll just kind of cave in a little bit. And I'm not going to, I don't, I don't want to be a minority. I want to be part of the majority. I don't, I don't want to be looked too different. So I'll, you know, what's big deal if we, you just kind of go that way. And that was kind of the Sadducees. They kind of, they were compromisers a little bit. And then you had the Pharisees. That's the third group. And they just got a little bit stricter and a little harder. But the problem with the Pharisees, they weren't very effective. They wanted to uphold the law, but they weren't that effective. So kind of our natural thing that happens to us is when culture disagrees with us, we kind of run or we might compromise or we kind of fight harder. That's kind of the three different directions that we have a tendency to go. But what if we could all be the calm in the middle of the storm? What if we could lead with love and gain influence in our culture without compromising our values? What if we could do that? What if we could lead with love and gain influence with our culture without compromising our values? See, that was the life of Jesus. That's what Jesus did all through the Gospels. We also see it in the life of Daniel. Some of you might be familiar with Daniel. Daniel was an Old Testament prophet. He found himself in a very similar situation that we all face. He was living in a culture that had really no use for his relationship with God. And in Daniel's situation, we see how he lived his life with influence without compromising. Some of you might remember a little bit of the story of of the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. Israel at one time was one one nation, one kingdom, and then they were divided after the reign of King David and his son Solomon. So, so that uh, the Israelites turned into two different tribes. You had the southern tribe, and you had the northern tribe. So, at uh, the northern tribe, there was uh, ten, ten tribes were part of the northern tribe, and they, 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 they messed up a lot. They easily worshipped idols, and they easily followed away from God. So, God allowed the ten tribes to be taken captive by the Syrians. So. God allows the Assyrians to come in, take the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, and they're off in Assyria. So then you have the southern kingdom left, which is made up of Judah and made up the tribe of Benjamin. And then here you have the the capital of Jerusalem with the temple. So the southern tribe, eventually, they kind of follow the tracks of the northern kingdom, and they sin and they worship idols. So God allows the Babylonians to come in and take over them. Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed pretty much the whole entire city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And Daniel was this young prophet. He was probably 14, 15, or 16 at the time. And suddenly he wakes up and his city's destroyed. The temple that he worshipped at's destroyed. More than likely his family and his friends were gone and suddenly he is taken into exile into Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. It looks like Daniel has nothing And that's probably a pretty good guess. But God, he had God. So that's the kind of the big setup. What is God going to do with Daniel now that he's taken off to live in a country where people are not going to have appreciation of his biblical values? So when I was in middle school, I started diving. I started being on the diving team, the swimming diving thing. And I did that up until my first year of college, and that was kind of fun for me. So I started middle school through my first year in college, then I quit. And what most people don't realize about diving is that the majority of the dive is already determined on what you do on the diving board. 
Most of what you do on, in diving is done on the diving board. You have to have very good board work. In fact, what you see on the diving board is always an indicator of what you're going to see in the air. So if you want to predict a good dive, how well they're going to do, watch the person as they walk across the board. You can tell on the diving board how good they're going to do once they get in the air. So Becky thought, let's watch a video just to remind you what diving looks like. See that beautiful, see that beautiful board work? That was not me either. <laughs> I wish that was me. Becky said, maybe if you would wear your Speedo in this survey. <laughs> I said, no, we're not going there. That was the worst part about being a swimmer. It's funny how things happen. When I was like in middle school and you had to do that, I was so embarrassed because I was so tall and so skinny. I used to pray that I would gain weight. And now for the last 30 years, I'm repenting of that prayer request because God doesn't stop that one. But that's diving. Diving is this beautiful sport, but the majority of what happens in a dive is done on that diving board. If you mess up on that approach on the diving board, everything you do in the air is going to mess up. See, in the same way, our walk with Christ is the most important thing that we can do in our life. Our relationship with Christ is going to determine everything that we do. It's going to influence every part of our life. Our behavior and our behavior is always going to be determined by our walk with Christ. See, there's many practices that I would simply spend jumping up and down on the end of the diving board. It would be called the dry practice because you never went in the water. The entire practice, you would just constantly practice your approach on the board and jumping on the end to get higher and higher and higher. And the whole part of that workout was simply to get into a relationship with that diving board. You had to know that diving board really well, and you had to develop that into a rhythm of your life. You had to spend time in the, on that board if what you wanted to do in the air was going to be successful. See, our journey of our walk with Christ is very similar to our life on a diving board. See, we all want to see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our life. We all want to live with love and joy and peace and patience. We all want our relationship with God and others to be very successful. We want, our, we want to be able to get through difficult times with peace. We don't want stress. We don't want anxiety. We want all that. But the problem is in our life, we always are in such a hurry. We are always trying to get more and more things done that sometimes we simply neglect our time on the diving board. See, we all want to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do the things that Jesus did. But the problem is sometimes we are in such a hurry that we neglect spending time with Jesus. We want to be like Jesus and do the things he did, but simply that first step of being with Jesus, we compromise on it because we are always in such a hurry. So how do you slow down? How do you slow down enough to spend time with Jesus? And that's actually so much of what we're doing in this series on spiritual formation. How do you spend time with Christ in this busy, busy world? See, the first part of a dive is actually the most important part is called the approach. When you get it on a diving board, the first thing that you have to think about is your approach. And that's when you start walking down the board. All of you have probably seen little kids when they get to a swimming pool and the first time they get on a diving board and they're all excited. And what's your natural reaction when you get on a diving board? Run as fast as you can. You can't do anything when you're just running as fast as you can. You just run a little farther, faster. 
but you're not able to do anything. You tell a little kid, hey, go jump off the diving board, and they run as fast as they can. They're never going to do anything. It's actually diving. You watch that guy dive, and it was slow. It was extremely slow. So the approach is very, it's very critical. And that's why spiritual formation is very critical. It's very critical that we slow down and we examine what are the rhythms and the patterns in our life that we are doing. So right before you get to the end of the board, you see the guy took that little jump at the end. See, that jump at the end is called the hurdle jump. And for a diver's mind, what you imagine is that there's a hurdle on the end of the diving board that you need to get over. That's one of the most strategic parts of the dive. You watch that guy get there. And see, if you're going to get over that, that hurdle on the diving board, there's two things you need to do. One, you need to raise your right knee as high as you can and put your arms in the air as fast as you can. You need to get that thrust with your body because you're not walking fast. You're totally going to get off the air by just your knee and your hands going up quickly. See, our hands in the air and our knees bent is always a sign in the Bible of humility and, and, and surrender and submission. In order to get the momentum that you need, it is only comes through humility and surrender and submission. See, for most divers, you can get to that hurdle and you balk. That means you stop. You get to that hurdle and you don't have the momentum going to get your knee up or your arms up in the air and you stop. You can't get over that. And for a lot of divers, you never really get that hurdle over that hurdle or you don't get a good enough jump and it's going to affect your dive. See, for me, that's the reason why I quit diving. It was my first year of college. I made it through a couple months of practice and I quit because I would get on the board and over and over again, I would get to that mark of the hurdle and I would freeze up. See, in high school and previously, all my dives had to be on the lower board, the one meter off the, off the water. But when you got to college, everything you did on the low board, you had to do on the 10-meter board, or three-meter board. And that is intimidating because you can fall. Or you can land on the water, smack, and you hurt yourself. So there's a lot of pain involved in diving. You think, yeah, you fall in the water, big deal. Falling on water from 20 feet in the air does hurt. And I would get scared. I would go to practice. I would sit in class all day, and I'd perseverate on what if. What if I crash? What if I hit the board? What if I hit the water and it hurt? And I would spend my days just obsessing over what if I didn't do my hurdle right and I would get it wrong and I would fall. See, for a lot of us, we get to that hurdle in our life and we get paralyzed with fear and we think, how am I going to get over that? See, every one of us deals with hurdles in our life and we wonder, how am I going to get over that? See, the truth is that hurdle on the diving board, the diving board was just playing out my emotional life in college. My personal life was actually playing out on the diving board. I was the first year of college. I was at that place like a lot of you, you recognize what it's like where you're, you're, you're young, you're kind of entering into adulthood, and you're starting to recognize a lot of your own personal hurdles in your own life. You start to recognize your own struggles, and that was me in college going, wow, I'm doing things I don't want to do, and I don't know how to stop. I knew all my Sunday rules of things I shouldn't do. And there I am, my first year of college, I'm away from my parents. I'm doing things I don't want to do. And I had no idea how to stop. See, I was raised in a Christian culture. I knew the rules. I knew you don't go shopping on Sunday. And that was the least of the things I was doing. But I had no idea how to stop doing the things that I was doing. It was a hurdle in my life, and I had no momentum to get over that. See, for me, I was raised on rules and regulations, but I had no relationship with the one who could actually help me get over my hurdles. 
And so today we're talking about, I want to talk about hurdles. But I also want to talk about the Sabbath. See, I think a lot of us face hurdles in our life and we don't know what to do. And for me in college, instead of jumping over my hurdles, they turned into an obstacle course. I just did everything to run around them, to sideswipe them, to, so I didn't have to actually deal with them. And that's not the way God created things to be. That's one of the reasons that God gave us a Sabbath day was to break cycles in our life. It was designed to help us to get over hurdles. The Sabbath was designed so that we could take a day and step back and say, God, I trust you that you're going to help me get over that hurdle. Or maybe step back and say, God, I don't have a whole lot of faith and trust and confidence in you, so I'm going to take a day aside, and Lord, would you give me more faith and trust and confidence? See, when God gave the Sabbath day to the Israelites, when he gave them the commandment, the Ten Commandments, they'd gotten out of Egypt. They were living in a place of freedom. And God wanted to make sure that the Israelites didn't go back into captivity. So the Ten Commandments were designed to give you freedom, to help you stay in freedom. And the Fourth Commandment, I believe, was designed to help you break free of cycles. See, when the Israelites were in captivity, they worked seven days a week, all day long. They never had a break. Monday looked like Wednesday. Wednesday looked like Friday. Nothing looked different. You had to work and work and work, and nothing was going to be different. And then God comes in with the Sabbath day, and he says, I want you to break the cycle of having to think you have to work all the time. You can take a day off and focus on me, and you'll be okay. Everything will be okay in your life. See, the Sabbath reminds us if we're going to live in freedom and jump over our hurdles, we need to do it from a position of rest. Sometimes we get so busy, so busy, and thinking, how can I jump over this hurdle? How can I overcome? How am I going to fix this situation? How am I going to take care of that situation? And we focus on so much of what I can do, what I need to do, that we don't stop back and say, God, what, are, what can you do? And that's why God gave them the Israelites that fourth commandment. See, the Sabbath is not about us doing more. It's about us doing less and seeing Jesus do more for each of us. But sometimes we have to step back a little bit and say, God, what are you going to do in this situation? Sometimes the Sabbath is simply a day that you put your hands in the air and just say, I, I, I don't know what to do. But I'm going to focus on Christ throughout the day. See, God gave us the gift of the Sabbath. One day of a week said, let it look radically different from your other days of the week so you can get through the other six days. So back to the question, how did Daniel survive in this post-Jewish culture? How did Daniel survive living in a culture that really had no use for his relationship with God? How did Daniel live in exile? I'm going to read from Jeremiah 29. I'm going to read the first verse. Some of you know Jeremiah 29, 11, for God says, I know the plans I have for you. That's probably one of the most popular Christian verses. So we can go back to verse 1, because sometimes we jump right to 11, forget 1. So Jeremiah 29, verse 1, it says, This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. Okay. Jeremiah the prophet's in Jerusalem, temple's ruined, city's ruined, everything's ruined. Jeremiah is writing a letter. Then we get to verse 10, and it says, This is what the Lord says. 
When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from the nations in places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place which I carried you into exile. See, it'd be very easy to read this letter. It'd be very easy for uh, Daniel to read this letter and just focus on verse 10 that says, after 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come and fulfill my good promise to you. It'd be good for Daniel just to read that and say, okay, well, I got 70, day, 70 years to wait. So I'll just kind of do whatever I want to do for the next 70 years because God already has his plan worked out, so I'm going to do nothing. Sometimes we do that in our life. We say, well, God, God knows what he's going to do. God's sovereign, so I guess I'll just sit around and do nothing. See, we failed to read the rest of the verse that says, then you will call on me and come and pray to me. We forget that part of the instruction that God said after 70 years, you're going to wait. But while you're waiting, you're going to call on me and come to me and pray. See, we forget that part. But see, not Daniel. He prayed. So we go to the book of Daniel. And it's interesting. We get to Daniel 9, verse 2 and 3. And Daniel writes this. During the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, learned from reading the word of the Lord is revealed to Jeremiah the prophet that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. See, what Daniel's saying is, I read the book of Jeremiah. I read Jeremiah 29. I know what Jeremiah, the letter that he sent, I'm reading it right now. And so it goes, continues, So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. See, Daniel lived in a country that had outlawed his relationship with God. It was now illegal in Babylon to worship God. In fact, part of the, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, strategy was to indoctrinate all of the Jewish people that came into Babylon into the customs and worship the false gods. That was his goal. That you would take these Jewish people, put them in a different culture, and now make them become like the culture around them. But Daniel was different. Daniel continued to pray. So Daniel's reading Jeremiah 29. He's taking it very serious, saying, God, you do have a plan for me. I'm going to have to wait 70 years, but you're telling me while I'm waiting, you better pray. And so Daniel did. See, Daniel wanted to overcome the hurdles in his own life. He wanted to live a life of meaning while he waited for God to return and to get them from captivity. And that's very important what Daniel did. He wanted to live a life of purpose while he was waiting. So Daniel lived in a country that outlawed prayer, outlawed devotion to God. And so you go back three chapters in Daniel 6, it tells us that Daniel prayed three times a day with his windows open. He prayed three times a day with his windows open because he wasn't worried if other people heard him. Well, that didn't work out the best for Daniel because he ended up in a lion's den because King Nebuchadnezzar wanted him killed. But once again, God comes in in his faithfulness and rescues Daniel from the lion's den. So that's chapter 6. 
And you go chapter 9, which we just read, that Daniel keeps on praying. He did not compromise his values. So you get to Daniel 9, verse 20. I'm jumping around a lot for time, and, and it says here, Daniel saying, I went on praying and confessing my sins and the sins of my people, pleading with the Lord my God for Jerusalem, his holy mountain. As I was praying, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the earlier vision, came swiftly to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. See, this is a very interesting verse. Do you notice what Daniel just said here? He said, the angel Gabriel, who was the same angel that visited Mary, came to me at the time of evening sacrifice. Daniel's not in Jerusalem. The temple's destroyed in Jerusalem. There's no temple in Babylon. But Daniel is still practicing his evening sacrifices to the Lord in the culture that is opposed to that. Daniel did not give up his spiritual formation of praying three times a day and making daily sacrifices at the temple. Daniel kept on doing in Babylon the same thing he did in Jerusalem. He never stopped. And that's how Daniel could live a life without compromise. That's how Daniel was able to gain great influence in the nation of Babylon. There's a whole lot more story about that, and I think we'll do a series on Daniel. Because it's a pretty strategic thing that Daniel kept doing the rhythms that he had done while he was in captivity that he did in Jerusalem. What he started to do as a young boy of 13, 14, or 15, he continued to do it even though he was in exile. And most everything that he had was gone. You see, that's my goal. And that's my prayer for this church, for this community. That we would be like Daniel. That we would develop rhythms and patterns in our life. That our spiritual formation would be such routines in our life that even when we're in a place like Babylon, we're still worshiping God in our heart. That even if we're in a culture that is so opposed to what we believe and think, that we don't have to cower away from it. Or we don't have to fear our culture and make compromises. Or we don't have to be kind of brassy like the Pharisees. But we can lead with love and lead with confidence without compromising. That's my prayer for all of us. That we would learn how to take advantage of a Sabbath day and the other spiritual forma formation disciplines. That we could dig away all the legalism that has been put on the Sabbath day and learn how could we as a community and as individuals and families learn a practice of the Sabbath. How could we incorporate a Sabbath day into our routines that would be life-giving? That would be, we would be like, oh, I look forward to Sabbath rest. I'm excited for that day. That day's coming that we're going to rest as a family and we're going to worship God and we're going to have the blessing of it. Instead of me, I'm still in the back of my mind thinking, oh no, what rules are you going to put on me that day? What if we could carve out a Sabbath day that would be a blessing, that would be a renewal, that we would look forward to it? That the next day after Sabbath would be like, oh, I can't wait for that day to come around again. That's what I want us to do as a community and a family. How can we practice Sabbath routines? I don't want to get up here and say, oh, here's 10 ways I think a Sabbath would be good for all of you. Because a lot of us are like, oh, 
We don't like that. So I encourage you to think of things on your own. What would you do if you were going to say, okay, I want to take a Sabbath day. I want to take a 24-hour period. You can look and see what the Jewish people, the Jewish culture, they start Friday night, go through Saturday evening. I think they go when the first star comes out on Friday night to the first star comes out on Saturday, and that's their 24-hour window. A lot of us uh, Western Christians, we do Sabbath on Sunday. You know, what would you want to do? I mean, some of us, you work on Sunday. How would you do it on Tuesday? What would you do if you're going to carve out a chunk of time? Say, I'm going to rest. So I encourage you to think about that on your own.